I get the privilege of introducing John to you again. Some of you, uh, most of you, I think, have been here every night, and I appreciate that. I really thank you for that. But those who have not been here, Brother John comes from us from Meharan Baptist Church. Uh, his wife, Ashley, is, um, and he's got two children, Caleb and Josh? Nathan. Caleb and Nathan. Um, hopefully they'll be able to be here tomorrow night for the big feed, maybe? Okay. <laughs> I won't put him on the spot anymore for that. Okay, uh, but we'd like to thank John for what he's given to us already and what he has planned for us tonight and tomorrow night. And we just ask you to lift him up and keep him in your prayers as he brings the message in a few minutes. Thank you again tonight, choir, and for those others that have sang, uh, uh, not just tonight, but every night. Uh, the music's been wonderful this week, and uh, I'm grateful to, to be a part of this week here with you guys as well. Uh, Connie was talking about my family a moment ago, and uh, my youngest son, Nathan, is here with me tonight. Nathan, raise your hand, buddy. Let everybody see you there. He's right here in the middle. And uh, if you guys don't mind, help me keep an eye on Nathan, Okay. Uh, Nathan can go places and do things when somebody's not watching him. And uh, my wife's not here, so uh, Miss Juanita, I know she'll take good care of him there. But uh, you, you remember when you were a kid and you used to go places with your parents and they would get caught up talking to friends and you'd just be standing there trying to be patient, but you had to wait for mom and dad to leave their conver- to end their conversation before you can leave? Well, Nathan is the one. We have to wait on him to end his conversations with people when we go out. We're like, Nate, are you ready? Let's go. Come on. And uh, he just loves people. He loves to talk with people. And, uh, and, and I'm particularly thankful for that about his life. So, uh, so feel free to uh, introduce yourself to Nathan tonight before we leave too. Would you turn with me tonight into the Bible, particularly that of Luke's Gospel in the seventh chapter? Luke chapter 7. Tonight we're going to read 
Uh, just a couple of verses. Um, we're going to talk about what may be a familiar story to you. But uh, if it is, I hope that you will still find something uh, fresh and new. Uh, a wonderful nugget of God's truth that you can still uh, take home and apply uh, to your life. And namely tonight, we're going to be talking about faith so that you will uh, make this a part of your faith. That it will liven you in your walk with Christ. Would you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as we look at Luke chapter 7 and verse 1. And here he writes, Now, when he concluded all of his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and to heal his servant. And verse 4 says, And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this, was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Will you pray with me? Father, as we surrender to you on your throne tonight, Lord, we have come here to hear from you. And Father, I pray that the truth would be told and the truth would be heard. So Father, use me in that capacity for your glory, that your people might know you in a greater way. And if perhaps there are those among us that do not truly know you, Father, that we will see that tonight. And Lord, we will have desire in our heart to know you and to serve you and to love you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. All right. So Luke's Gospel, this story of the centurion... This is one of those passages in all of Scripture that on the surface, it might seem like it's another one of those miracle stories. Miraculous healing takes place in this story. But there's really so much more going on than that in this passage. This is a monumental event that we've just began reading about. Because this story is also about a man who made Jesus marvel. Have you ever heard of Jesus being marveled before? It's right here. Jesus was marveled by this man. Have you ever met that person that you, you watch them, you listen to them for just a few minutes even, and you can tell that that person, there's something about them, but they have reached a level of faith with God that you know you've not quite yet attained. You can just sense, just being in their presence, that they are walking very, very closely to God. It's a level of trust and relationship with God that you hope to acquire, that you want to get to, but you just know you haven't gotten there yet. I believe that this centurion is, is one of those kinds of people. You see... Jesus has been amazed before, but not like this. Before in Scripture, when we're told that Jesus was amazed, we see, for example, in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, Jesus was amazed at the people's disbelief. He was amazed at their lack of faith, not by their faith. And this brings us to a, a very important and very impersonal question tonight. Does Jesus, and this is what I'd like for you to think about as we move throughout this text tonight, is does Jesus marvel at your faith? Does Jesus find satisfaction when he looks at you? What your faith is in your life reveals who you are before Christ. It reveals what kind of witness you are to the world. So what does your life actually reveal about your faith. Now, we all know that Jesus amazed other people throughout the course of his life and ministry because nobody ever spoke the way Jesus spoke. Jesus said some really astounding things. Last Wednesday night at our church, 
I talked about the woman who was caught in adultery and she was brought before Jesus and they were ready to stone her. But what does Jesus do? They, they prompt him right away with the question, uh, we, we found this woman and this is what's happened and the law says that she should be stoned, but what do you say? They were trying to back Jesus in a corner. They really wanted to get Jesus in a position where they could discredit him And better yet, they wanted to get him in a position where they could claim that he was pronouncing blasphemous terms and then they could haul him off in front of the council and charge him and find him guilty and then they'd be able to stone him. But what does Jesus do? He's calm, he's cool and collected. And when they come bringing this lady into his presence, demanding him to answer their question, Jesus just kneels down, starts writing something in the dirt. What was he writing? I don't know. No one knows. But they ask again. And Jesus responds in a way that none of them could have imagined. They really thought they had Jesus hemmed in with this question. Because if Jesus agreed with them, then he was discredited. Because the message he had been preaching up to that point was one of love and compassion and forgiveness. So if he said, yeah, you're right, go stoner. Then he's discredited in the message he's been preaching. But on the other hand, if, if he says, no, don't stone her, forgive her, let her live, that's when they could have charged him with blasphemy because he was going against what Moses had said in the law, that it was permittable to stone a person who was caught in that kind of act. So again, Jesus astounds them. He gives them, and they never imagined that he would have any other kind of answer than one of those two answers. But how does Jesus respond? You remember that story. He simply says, Let he who among you has not sinned throw the first stone at her. And then the Bible says that one by one, from the oldest of them to the youngest of them, they turned and started walking away because none of them could throw that stone because none of them were without sin. Jesus astounded them. He was always doing this kind of thing. Nobody spoke the way Jesus spoke. Nobody acted the way Jesus acted. Nobody could do the things that Jesus did. And he was making everybody wonder all the time. Matthew chapter 8, they spoke up and they said, Who is this man who even the winds and the waves obey the sound of his voice? Then in Matthew chapter 9, they said, Nothing like him has been seen in all of Israel which really was all of the world, even. So Jesus was always amazing them. People were always astounded by him. But this doesn't surprise us. I mean, we've heard these stories, and and we believe they're true. But we know also now, looking back, we have the advantage of hindsight, whereas those living in that day, they did not have the hindsight. But we know that Jesus was, in fact, God after all. So we're not surprised to know that Jesus can say things that are out of this world and so deep and penetrating for a person's soul. But what does surprise us about this story is what Jesus says about the centurion. About this man, he says, Not in all of the land of God's people has Jesus found such a person that has a kind of faith that this centurion has. You see, this is truly a monumental moment in terms of biblical history and what is happening in the people's lives during that day because Jesus is teaching something through this centurion. So let's take a moment and just try to gather our bearings and make sure that we understand the context as well as the content here because there's a couple of really important things that we need to know about what's going on in this story. First of all, this story takes place immediately following Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, on the Mountain of Beatitudes, it's called. It's right off the Sea of Galilee. And, and right next to the Sea of Galilee is the city of Capernaum. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But here, here's this Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is something that is etched forever in Christian history and Christian future. Because it's Jesus teaching about how to sort out whether a person is really a disciple of Jesus or not. And in that teaching, Jesus gives those Beatitudes... Uh, how incredible they are. He speaks of things like 
A person who's a true disciple of mine will be a person who will hunger for righteousness. A person who's a true disciple will be one who mourns over their sin, but they also mourn over the sins of others. A person of true discipleship will be one who will love even those who hate them. A true disciple in Jesus will be one who is marked by things like generosity and forgiveness and being gentle and merciful, gracious. And so it all comes down to a true disciple of Jesus really being a person who is being transformed by the working of the Spirit of God in their lives. And it's evident. And by evident, means obvious. But this is why unconverted people cannot be disciples of Jesus. Because there is no surrendering to the authority or to the lordship of Jesus. There is no surrendering to the supernatural transforming power of the word of God in their life. And so let's each one be very careful tonight that we would consider whether or not the transforming power of the Holy Spirit is really evident in your life. Or is it that your life is identified more by the marks of someone who is unconverted? Someone who is still of the world and far from God. Another important note here is what I mentioned a moment ago is about Capernaum as we understand the the setting in which all of this is taking place. Capernaum is a a city that is known for evil. A lot of bad things happening in the city of Capernaum. Jesus spent so much time in Capernaum that Matthew called it Jesus' own city. And in Matthew chapter 11, we're told that Jesus did so many miraculous things, so many great works in Capernaum, that if the city of Sodom had been able to witness all of the things that Jesus had done in Capernaum, that Sodom would not have been destroyed because the people would have been moved to repentance and turned to a faith in God. Now, Sodom, you might remember, is that Old Testament city in which was uh, very synonymous with wickedness as well. Namely, that of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality reigned in the hearts and in all the lives of the people that made up the city of Sodom. It was so bad that when God sent two of his angels that evidently appeared as mere men to go to the city of Sodom to get Lot and his family and take them out of the city, that when these two angels got to Lot's house and Lot brought them into his home, that the men of the city, from the young to the old, They came to Lot's house, and they asked him to send these two men out. They didn't know they were angels. They didn't know who they were messing with. But they said, hey, send these two guys out. We want them. And then Lot says, no, can't do that. Lot even offered to give them his daughters. How crazy is that? Don't ask me how, I don't know how that came about, what what he was thinking. I don't get it. But nonetheless, they, they didn't want the daughters. They wanted the men. Why? Because homosexuality was so rampant there. And they wanted to sexually assault these men that, again, they did not know were really angels. And so they were ready to bust down the door of Lot's house to go in and take these men to assault them when all of a sudden these angels, they blinded these men and they were able to get Lot and his family out of the city. Although if you know that story, you know his wife didn't quite make it because her heart was still in Sodom. She didn't really want to leave. But nonetheless, after they got outside of the city limits, those angels, they called down fire, and the city of Sodom was destroyed. Knowing this, it must be staggering for us to learn that Jesus says the city of Capernaum was worse than Sodom was. Now, I don't know what was going on in Sodom for, I'm sorry, in Capernaum for Jesus to feel this way about Capernaum, but what we do know about Capernaum is that Capernaum was given the truth. The gospel was shared there by Jesus himself. And an opportunity to repent was there before them. But they chose not to come to God. They chose not to turn away from their evil ways and trust Jesus. The irony, however, is that if you'd asked the people in the city of Capernaum if they were going to heaven, they would have said, yeah, oh yeah, I'll see you there. That was how they felt about themselves. You see, they thought they were righteous people. And they did have a righteousness, but it wasn't God's righteousness. The righteousness that they had in Capernaum was a self-righteousness. 
And you see, if you're a person bound by self-righteousness, you can't see your own sin. You don't know how dangerously far away from God you really are if you're living in self-righteousness. And so here's this city, Capernaum, that is filled with unconverted people who believe that they're saved and going to heaven. It's a city that is so steeped with hypocrisy that the truth cannot penetrate their reasoning. Not even Jesus could get through to them. And yet, in the midst of this kind of depressing scene, rises up this most unlikely character that sets the example of what a role model should be in Christian life. And it's a centurion who's a Roman soldier. This is a commander in the Roman army that has been battle-tested. This is a man who, who is amazing in his job of strategizing and hand-to-hand combat. He's an expert in this field. Typically, centurions, they, they might command troops as large as 100 other men. And they earned their ranks. They were not given their ranks, but they earned their ranks by display of loyalty and courage as well as fortitude and strength. In other words, centurions were, were, they were proven men who led by example. These were the men of men, so to speak, in the pagan world, in the secular world. But now we learn that this particular centurion was also a man of exemplary faith. This man feared God. In verses 2 through 5, and what we read just a moment ago in chapter 7, we see the centurion's faith in action as we learn that the centurion had a slave who was sick and was about to die. But the truth is, this isn't just a slave to him. This is a person that he deeply cares about. And when the centurion hears that Jesus is nearby, he sins for Jesus. He, he asks others to go and find Jesus and beg Jesus to come here and, and to heal this man. Now at this point we find a couple of things that are very, very striking in the story. First of all, that this centurion, this Roman soldier, cared about his slave. Because this was a Roman and his slave would have been a Jew. And... Jewish people to the Romans at that time, they were like third-class citizens. You've probably heard of second-class citizens. Maybe you've heard of third-class citizens. But do you know what a third-class person is to someone? They're no greater than the value of a worm. That's what the Romans thought about the Jews. They valued Jewish life as though they were a worm. So they meant nothing to them. And so it's astounding that this centurion actually valued his servants. He had compassion on them. And the servants even testified to this themselves. This wasn't the centurion boasting and tooting his own horn. His servants were bragging about him. They were lifting him up. When the servants got to Jesus, they said, Our master, he loves our nation. And by our nation, they were talking about the persecuted Jews. And then they told Jesus about how their master had taken his own money and built them a synagogue so that they could come and worship, but also so they could teach. And then his servants that went to Jesus, they did beg Jesus to come. They said, our master is an honorable man. And we really would love for you to come and meet his request as he cares for this other man. Now, there's a second thing that's really striking that's going on here. And that is that this centurion knew who Jesus was and he believed that Jesus had power to save and to heal. This was extraordinary as well because Romans were polytheists. Polytheistic means that uh, they had faith in multiple or many gods. Those of us that believe in one true God, we are monotheistic. Mono meaning one. Poly means multiple, though. And the Romans were polytheistic people. They believed in many gods because they had been influenced by many different religions. 
kind of like Islam, Muhammad. He was influenced by many, many different religions, and, and now their uh, religion is just one that's a great big culmination of lots of different religions with Muhammad throwing a few little things on top there that uh, I would say that he probably just dreamed up. Nonetheless, these Romans, while they were not people that cared about Jewish life, they also were not people that focused on one singular God. But this Roman did. This centurion cared about this one man named Jesus. And this was astounding because he was living in a society that would have belittled him and shamed him because he would have claimed to have had faith in Jesus. This was a corrupt society that was filled with unconverted people. And yet, here we find this centurion who is living with the transforming power of God inside of him by trusting in Jesus. A third striking point we see here is that this centurion, he sent others to go and get Jesus. Now, that begs the question, well, if this man really thought so much of Jesus, if he really believed in Jesus the way that uh, it seems to have been indicated up to this point, then why would he not have been the one that rushed to Jesus' side? Well, verse 6 in chapter 7 actually gives us the answer to that. He says, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word. This is what he tells Jesus. He says, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. What the centurion just did was exemplify one of the greatest acts of supreme humility. He was showing through his comments that he believed in the supremacy of Christ and his power, how ultimate it really was. And when he said this, he was saying, Jesus, I know that you don't even have to go to my house and touch my servant. He's saying, Jesus, I know that all you've got to do is just speak it out of your lips from wherever you are in the world, and my servant can be healed. And when Jesus heard that, that's when Jesus, Jesus says, hold on, everybody. And he stops and he turns around and he looks at everybody else. And he says, did you hear that? That's the kind of faith that I'm looking for. That's the kind of faith that I want to see in those people who would follow me. Jesus marveled, the Bible says, at the centurion's faith. And then Jesus honored that centurion. He honored his request and he healed his servant. But Jesus says, this is the kind of faith that I want to see. One where the transforming power of the Holy Spirit is evident in your life. I want to see the kind of faith in your life that shows that you are compassionate toward not other people, but shows that you are compassionate toward all people. You don't get to pick who you're compassionate toward. Jesus says, I want compassion from my people to be shown to all other people. No matter their race, no matter their creed. And Jesus is saying, the ones that will be my true disciples, the ones that I will marvel at their faith, are the ones that believe in the power of my spoken word, just like this centurion has just talked about. One year ago, my wife and I and our oldest son, some of you know just a little bit about this uh, event. I've shared some with a couple of you already this week. But a year ago, my wife and I took our oldest son and we went on a mission trip to India. We were in Bangalore, India. And we, we have some friends who are international missionaries with the International Mission Board there. And we went to serve with them, to work with them, and to minister to them over a, about a two-week period. And while we were there, uh, we met uh, my brother, uh, the missionary, my brother in Christ, He's actually my best friend, and the wife in that couple, the missionary wife, she's actually my wife's best friend, and so it's, it's a really incredible relationship that we have with this family. They were a part of our church that we left from to come here. I was actually their pastor there. We were best friends before I became their pastor, and then I became their pastor, and so uh, our church actually became the sending church for that missionary family. They have two small kids, too in between my two boys in age, a boy and a girl. But we went over there to spend some time with them, and, and uh, the missionary husband's name is John as well. And uh, he's a graduate of NC State as well in agriculture. He's got his master's degree in that. 
he was a very large farmer himself, but uh, he traded all that, sold everything off to go on to the mission field. His wife is also an NC State graduate from uh, veterinary school there. She had her own large animal veterinary practice with two other veterinarians that worked for her. They had two very, very successful businesses, and when God called them to go, they sold it all, and they're living in India right now and have been for about three years. Really amazing couple and uh, dear to my heart. But while we were there, I was working with John one day, and uh, he introduced me to a man named uh, Subaru. Uh, I couldn't help but call him Subaru, but uh, his name is Subaru. That's two words, Suba, first name, Ro is his last name, Subaru. But Subaru had uh, one of the most amazing stories that I have ever heard personally. Now, I've read some pretty incredible stories, testimonies of people, uh, and and seen some on video or, or television, but this is one of the most powerful testimonies I have ever heard from a face-to-face encounter with someone. But Subaru, when he was four years old, his father passed away. And that left his mother to raise three children by herself, three young children, and she did not work. And so actually they ended up becoming homeless. And uh, she became very desperate. And the desperation was noticed by others around her. And she had a couple of men that came to her one day when Subaru was about six years old. And when they came to her, they said, We would like to take your son and educate him for you so that he can have a a successful life and maybe help support your family. And that sounded good to her. She's living in poverty. She doesn't have a home. So she gave her son to these men, and she lost contact with him. Two years went by, and she'd been searching for her son the whole time, and she finally found her son. These men that had taken her son, they gave him an education, but it wasn't an education like what she thought. They educated him by putting him in the field and making him tend to the cattle and the herds. They made him a slave. And so when she found her son, she took him back into her care, and she she went back to her town. And it wasn't actually very much longer after that before a couple of women saw the desperation that she was in with three young kids. And they, too, approached her in a similar way and said, We'd like to take your son and care for him, and educate him. And these two women that came to her, evidently, uh, seemed like there might have been something more to them, and so she, again, let her son go with these ladies. And these women actually did teach her son. They, they taught him in the books. They, they really did educate him in knowledge. But they also educated him in the Hindu religion. And they also taught him how to sing which was uh, really incredible, too, because uh, what I didn't tell you about Subaru so far is that he had a major speech impediment, and he stuttered really, really badly. Now, these women did take Subaru, and they raised him, and they taught him all of these things. And he's 18 years old now, and he's walking down a street, and he comes across uh, this voice, this sound, and he's, he's intrigued by it, and so he continues to get closer and closer to it until finally he gets to a place where a man is standing on the corner in India and is preaching the gospel. Now, India is not a nation that is uh, closed to the gospel, at least not publicly. Publicly, they say they accept the gospel. However, privately in India, uh, Christianity is extremely persecuted, and there are no consequences to those who do the persecuting to Christians in India. But this man, nonetheless, was preaching the gospel. He was a street preacher. And Subaru found himself just sitting underneath this street preacher, listening to the gospel being spoken for the first time in his life, and God grabbed his heart, and Subaru believed. And before Subaru left that street preacher that day, he walked away as a saved, born-again child of God. And he was so excited, he went back to his home where his mother had then uh, had a home. He was so excited, he wanted to share his new faith with his mom and with all the rest of his family. And they were not as excited as he was. In fact, they couldn't stand what they were hearing because they were all Hindus themselves. And so what happened was Subaru and his excitement for Christ, a brand new Christian going into a family back to his home where these people supposedly love him. These are the greatest loves he has in the world. But they begin to try and beat the Christianity out of him. His mother beats him. His uncles and his aunts, they come and they beat him to try and get him to renounce 
his newfound faith in Jesus Christ. And they left him sore and beaten, battered, bruised, bloody. But he didn't stop. He didn't stop believing. And he continued to share his faith with them. Even though they only wanted him to renounce his faith. Well, sometime after that, Subaru decided that he did want to grow in his knowledge because he, he, all he knew about the gospel was what he heard that one day on the street. He knew he didn't know much about God's Word. And so he wanted to go to a seminary, and they do have some seminaries in India. And so he, he goes to this seminary, and he walks into the administrator's office, the admin office, and he sits down and he begins this interview. And the guy behind the desk realizes that this guy doesn't have any real Bible knowledge. He, he, he's heard something about Jesus and says he, he's saved, but he doesn't really know anything about the Bible. And then couple that with his major speech impediment. And this administrator said, I'm sorry, but we don't have a place for you here. And so Subaru left feeling defeated. But he let some time go by, and, and God continues to put this on his heart. And so he goes back sometime later. And there's a different administrator there. But the same thing happens. And he told him that we don't have any use for a person that doesn't have any knowledge of the Bible here. Which absolutely made no sense because it's a seminary. You teach the Word of God there. You don't have to know all of the Word of God to come into that setting. You come there to learn the Word of God. But uh, the suspicion is, is that they really didn't think that there would be any success for him in the kingdom work of God because of his speech impediment. And so he sent him away a second time, feeling defeated. He let some time go by, and he comes back a third time. The same thing happens a third time. But when he leaves on the third time, he's outside of the office. He's sitting down underneath a tree. He's really upset, and a stranger comes by. And this stranger says, son, what's wrong? And Subaru shares his testimony with him, and he tells him about his desire to go to seminary. And still to this day, nobody knows who this stranger was that came by. But this stranger says to Subaru, Get up and follow me. And he walks into that office and he stands in front of that administrator's desk, the one that Subaru had just left from probably an hour earlier. That same man, he stands in front of his desk and he lets him have it. He might have been the president of seminary, I don't know. Anyway, this administrator, he changes his mind and he allows Subaru to go into the seminary. And, and he becomes fully educated. He's theologically trained now. And he comes out of seminary and he goes back home and he begins sharing the gospel again with his family in a little bit different way because he knows so much more. And God used that to transform, first of all, his mother. His mother became a believer in Christ. And then one by one, his aunt, and then his uncle, and then his other uncle. Every one of the people in his family that had beat him just a couple of years earlier because of his faith in Christ now have surrendered to faith in Christ. And once his whole family is saved, Subaru feels that he is supposed to now go out. He's supposed to be a man on mission for God. And so he takes off on a journey. And he goes several hours away from the town that he was living in. And he finds this little village that the gospel has not been shared in. And he says, this is the place that God wants me to be. But he's got a problem. He doesn't, he doesn't have anywhere to stay. And he meets a man that's in that village, and this man is uh, curious about why this stranger is in his village. And so uh, Subaru shares his testimony with him, and he says, I've come here to share uh, with the villagers about the gospel, about Jesus Christ. Now, this man, he did not surrender to Christ, but he's very intrigued by Subaru. And he sees that he's a young man. And he, he thinks he's probably just a little bit full of himself. And so he, he, out of some way of wanting to mock him, he says, well, if you really want to stay here, I'll give you a place to stay. And so he gives him the worst rundown shack, a little tin hut. I've actually got pictures of it. I thought about bringing them tonight, but uh, I forgot. I forget a lot of things. But I've actually got a picture of Subaru uh, with me and my wife and Subaru too, but forgot that one too. But this man gives Subaru the worst little rundown, one-room, tin hut 
in all the village. But Subaru says, I'll take it. And so he's staying in this little hut, and he's going out by day, and he's, he's interacting with people, and he's trying to share the gospel. And then the first night that a major rainstorm comes up, he realizes that there's holes in the roof. It's just a tiny little one-room tent anyway. And so the rain starts pouring through all of the holes in the roof, and the floor is dirt, and there's holes in the floor. And as the water comes inside of this little tin hut and starts going down into these holes, he realizes there's scorpions in those holes. And the water starts to force these scorpions up, and, and he's afraid. He doesn't know what to do. And so he decides to pray. And this is what he does. He, he takes his finger and he draws a circle inside of this little hut. And he stands inside of that circle. It's just big enough that his whole body can fit in, even if he were to lay down. But he starts to pray inside of that circle that no scorpion will ever come inside of that circle. Subaru lived in that village for three years and no scorpion in that same hut. And no scorpion ever went inside that circle. But also through the course of those three years that he was there in that village, every single villager there came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Every single one of them. From there, Subaru's story takes on a whole different path. He leaves the village and he goes back to serve in other ways and to help others to know the gospel. And, and as of today, he is the director of the India Baptist Society, which is, as of last year, or at least in the previous year to last year, they saw some 3,000 people come to Christ and baptized in India. Now, that's, that's a wonderful number. But we also need to think about uh, the size of India. 1.3 to 1.4 billion people live in India. And less than 2% of that have any affiliation at all with Christianity. So, so some of them would be Catholic and some of them would be Protestant, but still, even those two together make up less than 2% of all of that population of 1.3 to 4. I think it's closer to 1.4 billion people there now. But still, it's not to take away from the, the great work that they are doing there. Now as the director of the India Baptist Society... They have, uh, they have trained in the last year more than 1,300 men to be pastors. They've planted more than 600 churches in the last year. But get this, by the year 2025, the India Baptist Society has a goal to plant 50,000 churches in 34,000 different villages throughout all of India. And by the way, Subaru was able to accomplish all of that through the working of the Holy Spirit in his life with a stuttering speech impediment. But get this. When Subaru preaches the gospel, he doesn't stutter. It's amazing. I believe God showed me this man I believe God introduced me to Subaru to show me another example of a person with marvelous faith. Faith that our Savior Himself might marvel at. Because He is a man who never stops sharing the gospel no matter how difficult life gets for Him. He never stops. He went from being somewhat of an orphaned slave to being an unwanted, stuttering student, to being a man who was beaten by his own family for his faith, to living in a small, one-room, tin shack 
that was looming with scorpions by night. At what point do you say it's enough and you stop, you quit? Most people aren't going to take all of that. They're not going to go this far. They're going to throw the towel in. I mean, I've seen a person renounce their faith in God because they lost their job. I watched a man renounce his faith in Christ in a hospital room one night because his father passed away. He had been praying that God would heal his dad, and when his dad did not come back, this man began hating God. Turned his back completely. And I've seen people turn away from God for so much less than that even. I've seen people stop coming to church and worshiping with other believers because somebody said something that hurt their feelings. And so now they cut out their whole church family because somebody offended them. I've seen people stop serving God on mission because they just got their priorities all out of sorts and and they've put everything else above serving God. I've seen people who have been Sunday school teachers who now they're not in church anymore, people who were deacons and now they're not even, not even in church anymore. You've seen them too. You probably know some even now. The Apostle Paul was imprisoned on multiple occasions. He was stoned, he was flogged, he was beaten with rods, He was shipwrecked. He was left cold and hungry and thirsty. He had many, many sleepless nights. And still yet, he wrote Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who has loved me and gave himself for me. Nothing was going to stop Paul from serving God. Nothing was going to stop Paul from being faithful, living out his faith. None of these things got in the way of him continuing to live out his faith in miraculous and wonderful ways. You see, the reason why is because Paul was all in. You've heard of sold out. Paul was sold out for Christ. He understood what it meant to be bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, that he was not himself anymore, that the life he now lives in the flesh, he is to live by faith in the Son of God because he knows God's got a plan for him and he wants to fulfill that plan with his life because he knows God matters that much. He knows it's that important to God. It's so important to God that he sent his Son to die for each of us so that we could have this opportunity to even live for him rather than die separated from Him for all of eternity. And like Paul, Subaru, he was all in. Because he knows he can't give back to God what God has already given him in Christ, but he's not going to let that stop him from giving everything he can to God and God's work and God's mission. But I wonder if that's the kind of faith that describes your faith tonight. When Jesus looks into, when he opens up that door to your heart and he looks inside, does he see a faith that makes him marvel? Or does he see a a type of faith that is so lacking that he's amazed at how far away from what it should be that it really is? Capernaum thought they had it right, but they were badly mistaken. But the centurion had it. Paul had it. Subaru has it. But do you have what Jesus is looking for in a disciple? Do you have what he has laid out? And he's really done it step by step for us in his word. But do we even know what it is to be a disciple? Have have we took the time to study it? And then look into our own lives and honestly reflect. Is that the kind of life that I'm living? Friends, I want you to know that this is something that is not out of reach. You, you might hear some of these things and think, well, wow, that's, just, that's too much. You know, really giving your life, dying to yourself? I can't do that. 
But friends, it is attainable. And there are people doing it every single day. Those same guys I was just talking about, Subaru and my missionary friend John, just three weeks after me and my wife left there, the persecution really hit home. And our IMB office in that city, as well as the India Baptist Society's office, which were side by side, three weeks later, both of those offices had to shut down. They had to destroy sensitive documents because the Hindu persecutors were starting to come in on them. But they haven't stopped what they're doing. They just moved their, moved their office. They, they moved their show, so to speak. But they didn't stop. My friend John, we, we interact through an app called WhatsApp Weekly. I get updates from him. He gets updates from me. And just last week, he was driving up north in India to go and do some missionary work that, in, in a people group that he's working with up there. And he went through an intersection in a small town where there was just a bunch of men standing there stopping vehicles. And, and we would call it begging, but they were doing it in a more extreme form. And John didn't roll down his windows. He just, he just kept his windows up, and he said he just had to plow through them. He, didn't, he said he didn't run over anyone. But, but that's the kind of life they're living in right now. I mean, that just happened last week. And then there's so many others of our brothers and sisters that they're experiencing so much more that we don't even know about. There are people that in their cities, in these villages, they are saying, you must renounce Christ. And because you will not renounce Christ, they will take their children from them. And they will make them sex slaves. They will take them and literally, this is happening today. They will cut the tongue out of those who will not renounce Christ as their Savior. David Platt talked about it. This is one of the things that really gripped me some years ago. When David Platt first wrote his book called Radical, in the very first chapter, I, I couldn't put it down after this. He opens up by talking about how here's all these people, and they're on another continent, and he's going to meet with them. And they're, they're all entering into this dimly lit room. The windows are darkened and covered and they're entering into this dif- dimly lit room and they're, they're coming in, staggering their time so as to not draw attention to the fact that there's a group of people gathering here because they're all Christians and Christians aren't supposed to be there. And once they all get settled into this room, they just start going around the circle and, and each one, they just start talking about what's going on and they, they start sharing stories with each other just like what I've just talked about, how, how this man's tongue was just cut out. This man's family was just uh, pillaged, and and now his children are are slaves. This woman's husband was just killed. And these people who are trying to live their faith out in these kinds of settings, they're asking the question, how do we go back and tell our people to continue living this way? But the the answer is in the gospel. The answer is already here. And and Paul, he he talks about it a lot. Paul really had a difficult time. Paul had some major, major hardships. Peter did too. All the disciples did. In fact, we believe all the disciples became uh, martyrs for Jesus Christ. They gave their lives. And then I just really want you to think about the kind of life that you're living. You know, we've got our routines. I've got it too. Me and my wife, we drop our boys off at school every morning. And uh, I'll go back to my office and I'll go do my meetings. And, and a night like tonight, she's, she's working second shift. You know, uh, my boys got, Nathan's got a basketball game tomorrow night. Caleb's got uh, baseball practice. You know, we've got all these things going on. But you do too. Your life's not so different than mine. But then we have this, uh, this freedom to come and meet in a setting like this. And, and, but what do we do with it? I'm asking you tonight, are we being true to God? Or are we taking for granted what God has blessed us with? Are we taking the riches that He has poured out into our lives? The pleasures that, that He's allowed to be put in front of us for us to be able to enjoy 
Are, are we taking all these things and, and we're putting them in front of God? I believe we are. I, I'd be honest with you. I don't believe we are. I know we are. How many of us in this room tonight have been a Christian, a born-again Christian for more than 40 years? Would you just raise your hand? Probably, probably a dozen or so people just raise their hand, probably more than that. How many people in this room have been a Christian for 25 years or more? And if you've already raised your hand, don't raise it again. But if you've been a Christian for 25 years or more, just raise your hand up. For the sake of time and simple math, I'm just going to cut it off there. But, but roughly speaking, I'll, I'll just do the easy math by tens. There were 400, 5, 6. There was about 600 years of Christianity represented in the hands that were just raised in this room. And I know there are others of you, you're believers too, you just haven't been a believer for 25 years or 40 years. And so, so what this means is that there's more than 600 years of Christianity represented in this room right now. Think about this, friends. If we were really serious about being disciples of Jesus Christ, and a disciple, as I described to you earlier this week, is one who goes and makes disciples for Jesus Christ. We go and share the gospel. We put it out there for people to know that they might understand the love that Christ has for them. And think about if, if you and I, if we were so faithful in walking with Christ that we really set out to bring one person a year to Christ. That's more than 600 people that would have been brought to Christ in this room. But have we done that? And that's if we were so faithful that we were just bringing one person to Christ a year. So let's not get too excited even about that. First of all, we know we're not even doing that, right? We don't see that in our churches. And I'm not just talking about Conway. I'm talking about our churches. I'm talking about Americanized Christianity now and how far away we are moving from uh, being true disciples of Jesus Christ. Because we should be working towards being that witness for Christ and drawing people through the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives every single day. So what if we were doing it uh, once a month? I don't know, what, 600 times 12? What if we were doing it every week? Multiply it by 52 now. Do you see how much we're not doing that we should be doing? And yet we want to believe we're faithful, don't we? But we're not doing the one thing that God says He wants His children to be doing. Friends, this isn't something that is unattainable. But what it is, is something that requires you and I to be a living sacrifice. Because that's what Jesus expects from those that follow him. And I pray you will be. Will you pray with me? Father, tonight I've been challenged. If no one else has been, I've been reminded tonight, Father, of of just how easy it is to slip away, to let the world encroach, and to let the things of the world be that which we pursue as our own satisfaction. But Father, we realize, we know the truth is that we should find our only satisfaction in you because these other things, while they may feel like they're satisfying us, they are only temporary at best. And Lord, you are the only thing that satisfies forever. And Lord, all we really have to do, your word says, is just taste you and we can see that you are that good. Father, I pray that these in this room tonight, Lord, that they would want to taste you like they never have before. And Father, that there be a fire set in our hearts that we would stop lying to ourselves because we have. Father, we've been deceived about what it means to serve Christ faithfully in this world. God, I pray we'd be deceived no longer. So Lord, if there's an awakening that awakening that needs to take place in any of our hearts tonight, do it right now, Father. Shake us and stir us and draw us unto true repentance, into true salvation, into true faith that will cause Jesus to marvel when he looks at us. Not be amazed at our lack of faith, but to marvel at our intensity towards faith and following him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Tonight as we sing our song of invitation, if, if God's gripping your heart, and, and I tell you again, if he's, not, if he's not any of you, he is mine.
But if God is gripping your heart about something tonight, about walking with Him, and and you need to repent because of your lack of faith, do that tonight. Or if you need to come to Christ and surrender to Him in true faith because you never have truly followed Him before. But tonight, you want that to be the night. Would you stand as we sing this song of invitation? And would you come? Thank you.